Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale. I am a writer and film critic and today I'm going to be talking to a legend in the film business Al Clark he started his career in uh, London as a publicist before becoming one of the main players in the Virgin Film adventure which had such an impact on British cinema in the 1980s uh, before leaving for Australia and having just as big an impact, if not a bigger impact, on the Australian film industry. Um, but what I've done is, because Al's got such an extraordinary life, he's also written several books, including a memoir called Time Flies and a book about um, Raymond Chandler's years as a Hollywood screenwriter called Chandler in Hollywood. Um, he's also written a sequel to his memoir, Time Flies 2. So uh, I've divided his conversation into two because it's a um, because I just didn't want to rush it. Uh, it's such an interesting guy to talk to, so many great insights. I wanted to uh, get as much out of it as possible. And rather than squeeze it into one episode, there's going to be a second part to this episode coming up in the next few weeks. But... 
before <laughs> before we get to that, first of all, you have to listen to this episode, which is uh, which is a, a wonderful uh, listen, as I'm sure you'll agree. If you enjoy the episode, remember to like and subscribe, do all that stuff. You can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Jonty, D-R-J-O-N-T-Y. And in the coming weeks, look out for Cinema Italia, the new podcast that I'm presenting and producing on uh, uh, which will be a, a journey through Italian cinema um, uh, with special guests from all over, including Italy. And uh, and we'll, I'm really looking forward to... I've already recorded a couple of episodes. I'm really looking forward to putting them out in the following weeks. So, um, yeah, look out for that. But before you do any of that, sorry about the long introduction, but before you do any of that, uh, please enjoy the conversation. Congratulations on the book. I absolutely, I've only read volume one, but I'm uh, I'm heading straight from volume one into volume two as uh, as we speak, because there's so much. Wow, what a life. Well, so far, so good. Um, it's, uh, I, it, it felt like a kind of, as I, as I wrote it, and as I reread it afterwards, it, it felt oddly like a life of innocence, in which I had just wandered into things that interested me following that that bizarre childhood and my relationship with the village cinema and and so on i uh, i just found in london when i became an adult that i was just doing things that interested me without having struggled to achieve them Mm, yeah, you kind of, you kind of following your passion, but I'd love I'd love to start with that a childhood in Spain and how um, you talk about sort of experiencing the cinema in in this dubbed version of uh, of Hollywood. That that's so interesting that you begin with that kind of um, dislocation. Completely, and um, and they all spoke uh, Castilian, so that even in in film set in say the American West, where they might speak in Spanish, uh, a counterpart of say Andalus or some some regional accent, they all spoke like university professors, even if they were played by John Wayne. (laughs) And so there there was this immediate um, uh, disruption uh, on watching it once, but, but that disruption only started when I began to see films uh, British language films in in English. Uh, until then, I really did, as a small child, think that all these people spoke Spanish, including Tarzan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I live in uh, Italy at the moment, and uh, we have a, a you know there's a, a, a hangover from the fascist period as well. Uh, a, um, a dubbing industry, which is uh, kind of legally mandated, um, yeah. and some actors become very famous for dubbing certain people. So the Robert De Niro um, dubber is very famous because he also does Sylvester Stallone and Al Pacino. So he's, he, he sort of covers all those major actors. Has he has he ever been photographed with them? Because... Oh, I'm sure he has because they kind of almost uh, because they're they're kind of actors in their own right. It's not that they're only this this guy's called yeah. Amendola. And yeah. uh, his son was in the was in Nostromo, the BBC sort of big adaptation. But he's um he in Heat when Al Pacino and Robert De Niro meet, 
it's him dubbing both voices. <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. That is exactly the kind of fact that most appeals to me and would have been in my book had you told me earlier. <laughs> it's oh yeah, they were the, the dubbers in Spain were were also famous and um as as was as is the case with the Italian actors you mentioned. Um, famous in, in their own right. But there was a ritual that when American, big American stars came to Spain, they met their dubber. And so it was, there was always a, a, a press photograph taken. So, you know, when Charlton Heston came over to make, you know, Seed and 55 Days at Peking, he met his dubber. And um, it was hilarious because it was it was a, a kind of ritual. It was like a school photograph, except that it was two adults who couldn't speak each other's language. I mean, I know that some careers uh, were sort of promoted more. So, for instance, Laurel and Hardy, the guy who plays Oliver Hardy, who dubs it Alberto Sordi, was the mo more famous actor. And so Oliver Hardy is the bigger sort of comedian mm. in Laurel and Hardy in Italy, whereas I would kind of, my, my own bias would go more towards Stan Laurel, perhaps, because he's, he's from the same town I was born. Well, he wasn't dubbed by as as distinctive an actor as exactly. uh, Sordi. And Sordi, of course, was very big in, in Spain as well, except there, more confusingly, he spoke Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> So when when um when you start to see these I mean to begin with that 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 village that you describe so beautifully in your book of your upbringing it's such a you know we watching watching something like Cinema Paradiso I know again it's not it's not Spanish but it, it's that idea of the isolated I think you refer to it in the book actually the isolated little village and the cinema is sort of like a window to the world yes. Yeah, that that was that's exactly what it was because um, our, our village was uh, its isolation was compounded by the fact that it was uh, on the banks of a river, and the river was was quite wide and treacherous and could only be crossed by the public motorboat that used to go over about six times a day or so. So. Um, its isolation was complete, and until they they built a bridge across the river from the town Welva, which is was was uh, uh, where traffic would have come from had we had any then, um, then the the village changed, and, and obviously, as cars drove through it, so they changed the the nature of the village. Um, but we used to go across as as uh, as children or as you know young adolescents. Uh, we used to row boats across the river, uh, unaware of of how uh, we were risking our lives in order to see some some hideous bee western that happened to take our attention, and um, and we just did it routinely because that was the only way that you could see films outside of the village by by getting to the town across the river. Yeah, I mean, I I lived in the middle of nowhere in the northwest of England, just south of the Lake District, and I used to walk home at night from the pub, just because that's there was either you went to the pub or you didn't go to the pub, but you had to yeah. walk. You know, you, there was no other choice. You know, it wasn't just, and it's crazy. You know, two o'clock in the morning walking walking through the fields and what have you. Um, you go to Scotland to boarding school, and this is your first. Uh, sort of exposure to to British culture is that is that right is that or or, or were you visiting? Yeah, well, my, my my parents were my first exposure to British culture, and they were 
They were Scots. They fraternized with each other. Um, they were um, they they were a little unit within the village, and my father was was there because that was where his his job was. But they wore their isolation quite well, and um, but they were determined that I I should have a a Scottish education because they were both Scots from uh, from Glasgow. And um, so it was ordained. I mean, I started hearing about how I was going, quotes, home to Scotland uh, from the age of about two onwards. And of course, to me, home was where I was in the Spanish village. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it was kind of like an imaginary place, this Scotland for you, I imagine. Yeah, exactly. But I did hear, I did start hearing films um, in England, in, 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 in spoken in English. I mean, I always remember um, the astonishing sight of, of Gary Cooper and Burt Lancaster and Vera Cruz speaking to each other in voices that became so distinctive in time that I wondered how I could ever have accepted them in Spanish. <laughs> it, did, it, it, did it become impossible then to watch films that were dubbed because it was just like, then it becomes too jarring? It became a little more distancing and and difficult. But also, um, as as the years were passing, so my, my sense of, of amusement increased at the fact that I I had been, I had surrendered to these films for so long without question. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I guess it's like, you know, trying to tell you what, what, what air smells like when you're breathing it. You're just, you know, it's just, yeah. the, it's just, what it's just the way like. it is. And, and the most preposterous voices as well. I mean, I remember one night my father uh, went with me to the village cinema. It was a, a night of thunder and lightning, and he was about the only person in the cinema. And we went to see the Lavender Hill mob. And again, Alec Guinness and Stanley Holloway speaking in Spanish was just uh, astonishing. So so uh, your sort of school uh, time, um, you know, pe people nowadays will look at sort of a boarding school in Scotland and think immediately of Hogwarts. But this was the uh, 1960s and it was, uh, you know, it, 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 it was fair to say probably a mixed bag educationally. How, how, uh, how do, do you feel about it now? Well, it felt like jail, um, right. and it felt like uh, as if my parents were a long, long way from from jail. As in those days, they were because travel to the southwest of Spain, where they lived, involved um, you know several trains and uh, one crucial plane ride, if not two, and um, it was a very it was a congested business uh, travel. And so I felt completely isolated, um, which was uh, really only softened by the fact that when I went to stay uh, with my aunt on holidays, I she wasn't terribly interested in me and nor I and her. And I discovered all these cinemas that were a bus ride away from where she and my uncle lived. So I went on this binge. So by the end of my first holiday in um, in Western Scotland, when when I you know my parents couldn't afford to take me out you know to Spain all the time, so I stayed with them, and I saturated myself with films um, spoken in English, 
And by the end of that first holiday, I had, yeah, I had pretty much forgotten that um, that Tarzan's yodel used to be in Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> Spanish yodel. Um, <laughs> that's, that's, so, that's so amazing. And, and, and your relief... Uh, to some degree from this prison is is not only uh, given by by your your cinema going it's also music you become intensely uh you know it, to say it passion, interested in music isn't isn't enough it's like you're passionate about music at this point yeah well my sister who is eight years older than me was really my my conduit to that because she she had one of those enormous um, portable radios. You know, they, they they were a piece of luggage essentially that she carried around with her, and um, and she played it. And so through her, I heard British pop records of that moment, and they really started getting into my system because in in Spain there was no chance to to hear them. And I arrived in England, although well-versed in dubbed versions of English-language films, uh, completely ignorant of, of pop music, which I, I learned about very quickly um, through her enormous radio. And, you, and you're coming, I mean, you say this in the book as well, You're coming. You, you, this is a time when listening to pop music is, uh, you're, you're, you're listening to the, the art form, which is kind of peaking at that point, is, is getting to a point of absolute splendor with the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, and all these yeah. amazing acts. Um, so there's a brilliant confluence between your own interest and, and the state of the art. Completely. And um, it was a, a, an extraordinary time. And every time I, I read a, a, an article that's you know retrospective um, and the names come pouring off the page, I, I'm just astonished at the intensity, longevity, and gravity of so much of the talent. Absolutely. And and this extends to you after you've left school, you start working. I mean, you you do this, you sort of invent blogging before the internet, really. So start writing about your passion and your interest, and then it turns into your job. Yes. Well, you have to audition for even for underground magazines, as they were then rather quaintly called. And um, I, I auditioned by by doing you know a few reviews for them, uh, which led them to feel confident that I I might be able to do a bit more. And then um, I I started doing a bit more. So it was a it was a fabulous, um, painless uh, entry into uh, a parallel universe really of of uh, of london and and all the ebullience and and pulse beat that it uh, it had at the time and i was just uh, yeah by this that stage i wasn't you know the boy from the spanish village anymore but i was very shy about uh, meeting people and revealing you know what a yokel i was when they were so smooth and um, and fluent, <clears throat> and you, I mean, uh, you were becoming, uh, you know, the people, the list of names that that uh, you're you're encountering, and you're, um, you know, it, you become very greedy at this moment. Uh, you you confess yourself for for live performance. You go out every night, and you're watching new bands and new groups and, and everything. That, that must have been a wonderful world of experience. I mean, that's an Antonioni. Pi- Film right yeah. there. 
Well, it was extraordinary because I um, I, I never realised that that this could be available to someone like me, and all I had to do was to get a job that made it available, and someone like me was suddenly there all the time. And I couldn't get enough. I mean, I was very, um, I, I think when you've been deprived for a few years, you, your first reaction to abundance is um, unremitting greed. <laughs> <laughs> you, gl you glut yourself about <laughs> And I loved it, and it was just, and it was also. I was by then a father of a, of a baby boy, and um, and so you know it, it was a kind of antidote to the settling down. Because when I was at these shows, I felt very unsettled, and then I go home and be settled. You know, <laughs> the best of both worlds. What was the what? What was was there a gig where you had that? um sort of pinch me moment of like but what's what's the young the young boy for, who rowing the boat across uh to the island to watch the b movies you know what is he doing here <laughs> yeah i i wish i wish there had been a moment that i i can identify um because it would make the story much better if i if i could make one up but to me it was like a a, a kind of unrolling carpet of options and possibilities, and and there were so many different kinds of venues, you know, small sweaty ones, and big luxurious ones where where visiting bands who were already famous would would perform. I mean, I remember being at the at the very top deck of the Albert Hall, where the tickets were only about you know two and six or something like that in, in the old currency, watching a group whose first album I had just heard, a group called Family, and they were supporting uh, an, a well-known American singer-songwriter called Tim Harden. And I was up there practically on my own because everyone there uh, clearly uh, could afford more expensive tickets. And I stood there looking down at, at Tim Harden and then at Family, thinking... What am I doing here on the top level of the Albert Hall on my own? <laughs> That's I mean the 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 groups and so so you start writing for Time Out, um, yes, and you and and you sort of move from Time Out to Rolling Stone, and then you move uh, into sort of working another part of the business, which is sort of um, more uh, becoming like. Uh, a publicist. Correct me if I'm wrong yes. here, because I, I don't want to. Um... Yes, that, that's that was exactly the the trajectory. In the the, the music business was very fluid, um, and and in retrospect, quite small. We all knew each other, or eventually got to meet each other at uh, at shows or at parties before or after shows, etc. And so, because we all knew each other. Um, a potential employer such as Virgin uh, already knew me and of me. And indeed, I had already written about Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells, their first record that really built the company. And so when they decided to take on a, a, a full-time publicist with experience, I was by then a publicist with a bit of experience, having having worked for um, for Warner Electric Atlantic for a small, a short amount of time. But it meant that I was in the pool, swimming around, 
and and was invited to um, you know to to dive into another one. <laughs> yeah, I mean the description of some of the parties. I think you described John Peel's uh, wedding, and there's Rod Stewart's there, and he's ha- he's oh, not yeah, quite yeah. become Rod Stewart. And, <laughs> And then, I mean, I'm really resisting just asking you what so and so like, what so and so like, what because yeah. there there are so many great names there. Well, it was it was extraordinary the fluency of the traffic. It seemed as if um, that whole there were there were hardly any gate gatekeepers. It seemed, mm. and of course, gatekeepers are synonymous with with fame now especially with with uh, celebrity music fame and there weren't any you just you just want if provided you could get into the event itself you could be circulate as you as you wanted and if you went up to somebody who didn't want to talk to you they just tell you so and mm. and they'd usually have two or three other people around them so it didn't matter but it was, yeah, it, it was a um, an era of access above all. Mm, absolutely. I mean, I, I go to some parties at the film festivals that I attend, and there's always a party within the party. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> usually, <laughs> and usually, ironically, it's really lonely and sad, that party within the party. It's, like it's just a, some people in a corner. <laughs> Yeah, exclusivity comes at a price. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. One name I'm gonna have to ask you, and it might not be a name that, um, but Ivor Cutler. I loved Ivor Cutler. I loved his poetry, and I loved listening to him. And he was one of the acts that you were um, championing at Virgin Records. You you yeah. you describe him as being sort of in a genre of one. Yeah, he was a he was a dear dear man, Oliver Cutler. Um, he wasn't quite as old as he looked at the time. He always looked, you know, three times as old as as everybody else who was on the bill with him. Whereas he was only twice as old. <laughs> and, uh, he was he was just a a delight, and he was so full of mischief and amusement. And of course, having been adopted by groups um, uh, over the, the previous decade. He had this kind of uneasy um, uh, personal traffic between what he did, which is to write poetry and write stories, and also meet all these uh, very kind of wild people that um, were not at all like him, but were fascinated by him almost anthropologically. He um, he really did make such a difference to Virgin. He was the perfect Virgin act in a way, because for as long as Ivor was making records for Virgin, which after three he he, he didn't, um, Virgin could always, however successful it became, just declare that it was a place for everyone that was of interest to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, it's it. Anybody who's who's nurtured and given a home to a talent as strange and, and wonderful as Ivor Cutler, and if anybody listening to this is going, what are you talking about, Ivor Cutler? Why aren't you talking about <laughs> Pink Floyd or the Sex Pistols or all these other people? Um, l- listen yeah. to some Ivor Cutler and you'll understand. <laughs> yeah. um, so you, you uh, in Virgin, during the maelstrom of like the Sex Pistols, uh, Mike Oldfield, you've already mentioned, but a whole bunch of other acts which are coming in. Derek and Clive uh, released their, their sort of spoken word albums uh, with comedy, which can only be described as um, 
well, not not politically correct, let's say, but I mean, we devoured this when I was at university 20 years ago, we devoured Derek and Clive as as it it was still shocking then. And I think to this day, they were very funny then. Um, I mean, they I, I I suspect that had Peter and and Dudley lived longer, they would have turned kind of bitter and twisted mm. because it was it was it felt as if it was heading that way. Um, but boy, they were funny. I mean, it was again, it was as if um, they were so reflexive with each other. They had known each other for so long. They had amused each other to a point and then probably stopped amusing each other for a while and then learning how to re-amuse each other. They were unavoidably funny. And when they made their records, it was it was outrageous. It was it was wilder in those corridors of the townhouse than it ever was with uh, with punk bands. Right, yeah. When punk turns up, it's sort of like it's it's reinventing a wheel that's already been spun quite a few times. Yes, yeah, with a different kind of cadence and emphasis, but same old thing, which is uh, I'd like to get up your nose and upset you. And I, I love the way you you kind of transition through that in a in a in a you're sort of watching it happen and um, you don't seem to sort of lose a step as you, you you can go from Mike Oldfield you know and John Anderson from Yes and Phil Collins to Johnny Rotten and the Dead Kennedys yeah. you know well I didn't confuse myself with the groups right I knew I wasn't the talent if I had a talent at all. It was for understanding who they were, what I was dealing with, and how best to to navigate through the the maelstrom of uh, of media attention, which a number of them got and um, weren't really quite sure how to react to initially. So I th- I think that's a very uh, important, possibly the most important lesson I learned as a publicist, which is don't think you're the group. You're not. You 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 help to to steer them, and then you go home afterwards, and your home is probably, as it was in my case, uh, uh, semi-detached in West London, where my wife and two children were expecting me home at any moment. But any moment took a while. <laughs> right, right, yeah, and obviously that has a personal cost as well. Um, yeah. What did your um... What was the the biggest difference uh, between you know a public perception of someone and your perception of them uh, doing your job? Because you do have to sort of take the three o'clock in the morning phone call, or you know you know simmer down somebody who's who's maybe angry for something your act has done. Yes, I I just try and I, I tried to play a straight bat, as the expression used to go at the time. Um, which was to listen, not not to start shouting back, and to process and to decide as quickly as possible, sometimes during the call itself, what um, course of action was was just and and desirable, and make everyone calm down a bit. And I was because I was a bit older than everyone, and a bit older in those days was you know four or five years, if if that. But that was significant in your in your twenties, and um, so I, I I tried to turn my the difference, the gulf between how I was living 
and most of them were living into an advantage, a benefit Mm. that um, rather than seeing myself as some kind of uncool outsider, because my job was not to typecast myself that way, but to see myself as as a kind of as a living entity within their world. Who who did you have uh, a lot of affection for? Ivor Cutler. <laughs> right, right. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I loved Robert Wyatt, who made uh, two records for Virgin, uh, wonderful records. Um, I had known him before when he was in the in the group Shock Machine, and I continued to fraternize with him um, as a solo artist. <clears throat> and he remains to this day the only. Uh, Robert had a, an accident and uh, ended up in a wheelchair, and then he, in that wheelchair, he had a hit single, which was a cover version of "I'm a Believer," and he appeared on top of the pops. Uh, in on his wheelchair, despite entreaties from the producers to put him in, you know, a big wicker cane designer chair, and um, and remains to this day the the only person who, who who has done that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot; we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Um. So I loved him. The the most entertaining group of all, really, with whom I travelled incessantly, um, was XTC. Right. Yeah, a great band. Yeah, they lived in uh, in Swindon and were from there, and they were just magic. They mm. they had a kind of perfect tightrope walk of uh, youthful excitement and also great wit and in certain cases civility as well and it was wonderful to to go to small french and dutch clubs with them when they were touring europe with the then not yet popular talking heads mm. and seeing the two groups support each other literally you know the xcc would be would would have the 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 chairs and the tables near the um, near the stage when talking heads were playing and talking heads would reciprocate um later and it's it's found one of the great um benefits of touring i think uh uh, is the amount of friendships that um, that, that can be formed, and they can. The earlier in a group's life they begin, the more enduring they're likely to be. Mm. Uh, as we know, life becomes a bit more complicated when um, when one has some success and another doesn't. 
Yeah, I, I've just read the uh, Chris France. Is it Chris France, the drummer from Talking Heads? Yeah, his yeah. book that he wrote with uh, Tina Weymouth, his wife. And uh, it seemed a fairly mean spirited book, to tell you the truth. It seemed to be, it seemed to be mm. da David Byrne isn't, is, you know, is a difficult guy to deal with, even as it admits that it, he kind of, he's probably on the spectrum and, you know, it, He's not necessarily in control of some of those behavioral issues, but um, yeah. what, what have you uh, read the book or are you? Um... I haven't, no, no. But I know they they did a, they fell out a lot um, during the eighties. Um, when I saw them was was uh, I think nineteen seventy eight or so, where they had um, they hadn't even done um, you know more songs about building and food yet or you know any of the things that made them. Uh, the successes they became. I think they made one album at that point, which was Talking Head '77, uh, with one in the in the wings. So it was they were a very at a very different stage in their evolution. And I think again, it's a very good example of a of a group that um, whose kind of ideological rupture began um uh, began to escalate uh, at the same rate as their success <laughs> right right yeah as yeah. soon as they start as soon as people start buying their records they start yeah yeah you know arguing well and another side effect of all this touring is the that you uh get to read a lot of books and this this brings us on to um kind of why why you're on this particular podcast uh which is um you start writing about film and uh I, i'm just it, it's really interesting because of all the people i've um interviewed your sort of entry into writing about raymond chandler in hollywood it feels like a unique one i've never you just sort of decide oh nobody's written a book about this guy and he spent all this time in hollywood and i'm in los angeles so i might as well uh, might as well write a book about yeah. it it was kind of like that i mean it's um, it 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 probably it these things percolate over a while but you can only decide once that you're going to and and follow through um, i never decided until until I did, um, but I I did know about. Uh, I mean, I, I was very. I, I, my dream life was really all about um, California. I mean, I just I, I I became fascinated by it, and I had never visited it at the time. And so when I did, and I found myself on my first night there swimming under the Hollywood sign. I could hardly believe uh, my luck. <laughs> and you get a new, I mean, this is um, a fascinating look at sort of a golden age of Hollywood as well. And Chandler, albeit he had a brief career as a as a screenwriter, he's he sort of touches a load of, you know, there's an Alfred Hitchcock film, there's a Billy Wilder film. Um, there's the uh, the adaptations of his own novels, of course, and you try mm. to talk to most of these people, and you get you you uh, you have um, uh, and you and you write this successful book. Yeah, well, there were varying degrees of success with uh, with reaching those people. Um, they were dying at, at quite a rate by that point, and uh, many who were still alive had retired and were were difficult to to track down. Or unwilling to speak because they they really had enough of all that and possibly couldn't remember anymore. So I um, 
I confined myself to to just working my way through a list of people I knew were alive and that conceivably I could find. And it was great fun. I mean, it became a, a detective work in itself. Uh, and when you're writing a book about the writer of detective fiction, um, in Hollywood especially, you're, um, you're kind of enslaved to the whole idea of mysteries <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely and i mean there's a point in your uh, memoir in which you you actually sort of talk about ah this is this is the real chandler uh, los angeles you know the stucco and the sort of crumblingness of it yeah i stayed in a hotel that um that reminded me of that and i i drove a car that reminded me of that i i just wanted to be to immerse myself in what I imagined was that world, in order to come out of it with a, a distinctive book about what's left of it, especially in the in the film world, um, which, as you noted, he contributed a bit to, and um, uh, which did very well out of his uh, his novels. Absolutely. I mean, I think it stretches further than than even sort of direct adaptations. It's just the atmosphere of Chandler uh, is in lots of noirs that he, he maybe don't mm. don't have any formal connection. Yeah, he was the. I mean, he 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 wasn't in a field of one, but he tilled his own field very carefully. You know, on the on the side, so that. One can well if you've read enough detective fiction, you don't confuse him with with Dashiell Hammett or or uh, you know or slightly younger ones like Mickey Spillane and so on. It's a different way of seeing seeing the world, and I think he also saw himself as as a as a man of letters. So, mm. um, but he would probably take objection to to anyone thinking he would be slumming it by doing detective fiction because he didn't see it that way at all mm, absolutely i mean i love dashiell hammer as well i love all those hard-boiled writers jim thompson who again yeah. also has a brief sort of hollywood interlude if you like um and and from there you're you move towards um actually becoming more, much more involved in the film industry um still still to some degree in connection uh with virgin how how does that how does that start when i uh, I, I left virgin briefly i mm. had, I had uh, a, a kind of two months falling out with them and um and then i i kind of missed them and they mm. missed me Thankfully, <laughs> and um, so I, I had a you know I had a conversation with with Richard Branson about what I could enjoy doing there that would be useful to the company, and um, so we talked about you know creative activities generally you know uh, books, uh, films, television, it, it's the things that would amplify the brief of an entertainment company, mm. uh, one that wasn't confining itself to 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 records and 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 the and the, the musicians who go with them. So I, I it, it it's not often in 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 anyone's life that you get an opportunity to to kind of invent 
the job that you think you would do usefully. Mm. But that's as close as I, I one could ever get. And um, and there I was. So I invited people I knew in the film business to um, to send us scripts and uh, discuss ideas with us and so on and so forth, with a view eventually to making films. Because it, uh, as, as people have told you to the point of tedium, um, it really takes forever mm. uh, or can take forever. And so you just have to make sure that the, the architecture is sound and the, uh, the intentions are, are clear. And uh, very early on, uh, a producer came to see me about um, money that was still that was still short on uh, a short film, a narrative film based on um, Graham Greene's story, A Shocking Accident. Mm. And uh, there wasn't a lot uh, of gap, but there was um, for us, a new, a new entity within the company. And I thought it was a, it was a wonderful uh, idea and script. And when we managed to, uh, to, to see that, you know, Rupert Everett, who was then a young star, and, and Jenny Seagrove, who was just coming off the film Local Hero, and so she was one too, they both wanted to be in it. And so uh, I thought, what a great way to dip our toes in 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 the ocean and um so we did and uh and it won an oscar so <laughs> what better departure point could you have beginner's luck <laughs> the invention of a new company <laughs> there's a wonderful description of you going to the oscars i think it might be the ceremony pre just prior to you winning the oscar and you talk about how it's a television trans transmission so when it cuts to break Everybody, it just stops. The whole thing yeah, just, it just stops. stops. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah <laughs> someone yeah. comes on and starts cleaning the stage. It's very. It, it was certainly then very much about the broadcast. You know, right. I think the show itself didn't really matter very much. Um, now, well, I don't know what they do to keep people entertained apart from um, have you know scandalous stage attacks. And stuff <laughs> I like that. The slaps. I, I think they should make that a part of every ceremony. Someone should just slap <laughs> sure. Who's going to be the hitter and who is going to be the hit? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It could be a section. Enough in memoriam. We can cut that yeah. down and we could just have slaps instead. Mm -hmm. um, so you you go from this short film, which is, uh, as you say, sort of dipping your toe into the pool, um, to uh, having a string of, I mean, having a huge influence on the British film industry. And this is sort of when the British film industry itself is... Um, I mean, you make the point in your, <clears throat> excuse me, in your book that uh, the average domestic sort of uh, British film goer is going to the film to the cinema once every fifteen months. I was shocked by that. That it's mm. such a small. I mean, at this time in the nineteen eighties in Italy, admittedly you had less TV in Italy, but in Italy people were going to the cinema two or three times a week. Well, video had uh, had become very important in the UK around this time. And people <laughs> felt that uh, if they could watch something at home, then um, they would and and could. 
And mm. so cinema, um, I, I think, lost some of its uh, its allure. People would still come out for, for the big event film, but um, if it could be got on on rather bad VHS uh, a few months later, then they they waited. But it it, it the film business, like most areas of the entertainment world, is is cyclical and uh, and and capricious. It 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 just sways from from uh, abundance to 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 poverty, and these habits just get into the bloodstream, and um, and you you kind of have to defy the the bad times and and mind the costs and um and and put you know and try and find extra money for the good times to elevate the nature of the entertainment you know and so you're you 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 start with films like uh well electric dreams is a a, a um a, a film that i remember being on the, the cinema when i was growing up i was you know in the 1980s i was a mm. uh, coming of age so to speak uh and then films like 1984 which uh stars possibly my favorite actor of all time richard burton um but but i was surprised reading that about how late on in the process burton uh came on board he was um yeah we'd, we'd forgotten about him um i mean paul schofield was going to play the role for for a while and then and then broke his leg and Sean Sean Connery, you mentioned as well. Sean Connery was yes. Uh, Mike Radford, the director, went down to Marbella to disturb Connery during one of his uh, games of golf down there. <laughs> uh, and uh, he he would have been very good, of course. Um, uh, others, uh, we we you know we tried to get Rod Steiger. Um, um, anyway, the the path eventually led to Richard Burton. And so all of us said almost in unison, why didn't we think of him first? <laughs> well, I mean, it seems like a perfect casting. It's absolutely, you know, I can't, oh, all of those names are great, but I can't imagine any of them being as good as- Well, the nature, the nature of the role and the nature of the scene, uh, the, the major scene between O'Brien and, and uh, you know, I mean, between Hurt and uh, and Burton, is that you have to be spellbound by his voice. He has a lot to say, and he is not going to be hurried because he's a torturer, and torturers cannot be hurried. So you must seek out a presence that is reinforced by a voice that is just beyond dispute, where that it's a voice that could persuade you to do something that would hurt you, that would be against your your instincts and desires and so on. So we got the right voice and the right presence. Mm-hmm. And it, I, there's a brilliant quote from Michael Radford that you mentioned of uh, him having difficulty remembering his lines. And he's like, oh, he's got, <laughs> the problem is he's got all the Shakespeare plays in there. He hasn't got room for our stuff. <laughs> <laughs> he can't remember my script. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was funny. Yeah. The, the, there's, as, 
I don't know if, it's, if conflict of interest is the right word because sometimes it's very symbiotic, but there is a relationship between the music arm of Virgin and the film arm in which, so for instance, for 1984, you've got Annie Lennox and Eurythmics doing the Sex Crimes song, which I remember being a big hit at the time. Uh, and then sometimes it's, it feels more symbiotic in the sense of like absolute beginners, where you've got a real musical and a wonderful David Bowie song, one of his one of his yeah. better songs of the well, 80s. Yeah. What all the films have in common uh, is that they have really uh, ambitious soundtrack albums um, and ideas behind the making of those albums. Um, we started out very traditionally on a film called Secret Places, where we, um, uh, Zelda Baron, the writer director, uh, wanted to work with Michelle Legrand, with whom she had just done the film Yentl, when she was doing in you know, a continuity for Barbara Streisand, and um, and he agreed to do it, and he was exceptional. I mean, a really a great start for a record company to feel that they were in the hands of a master. And whilst we knew that a Michel Legrand soundtrack album was not going to sell like a, a, a pop record that uh, revived the late 1950s and uh, and included David Bowie among them, um, we did feel that each each soundtrack must have its own character and its own identity. And so with that in mind, um, we we set about it the 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 soundtrack of 1984 again we wanted to be able to score the film in the right kind of way but also to have something to release that would help to reinforce uh financial safety net if the film didn't work commercially mm. and so i i think from that point onwards we were very conscious of that on um on a film we did called captive the edge uh from u2 mm. uh came on and and uh and worked on it and we were always attentive to that element of it and with absolute beginners of course which went uh considerably over budget um the soundtrack actually saved us mm. because uh david bowie's uh, title song was such an enormous hit that um, and we, and we had uh, the soundtrack, so it was a, it was a very important decision that was made at at that moment. I'm looking through these these films that you that you uh, you produced and brought brought to the screen. Um, it, it makes me sort of. Uh, what it's amazing how in the 80s the british british films was were so varied i mean you had absolute beginners 1984 you have also merchant ivory working at this point you have alan parker going to the states so you you almost do a film with at one point i i think was he was he uh, i'm not sure if he was in the running for gothic because you had several um no he wasn't the the only director that i seriously considered before ken russell was an american director uh bob rafelson oh of course and yeah well that would have been a, would have a been, different film he would have been very interesting but yeah a very different um i think he would have found uh a chilly autumn in the um in the lake district uh something he could happily avoid <laughs> <laughs> ken russell yeah. ken russell though i mean he's uh 
I think you put it that, you know, he turns up in a press conference in Cannes with white hair and his red socks and he's sort of, and and he's just like, oh, this guy's a walking photo op. Oh, he was, well, Cannes was so practiced at stuff like that because by the time he did Gothic, he had been famous for at least 20 years Mm. and, and famous for both what he did and his reputation as a, as a, so-called wild man um and mostly he was he was actually a very gentle soul but he he wasn't uh intimidated by the prospect of of an argument um he i don't think he sought them but i think he was happy enough about having them yeah he's he wasn't someone who was conflict averse so to speak yes well put. <laughs> <laughs> I, I should have got a job doing that. <laughs> yeah, that's. <laughs> um, I, now I'm I'm really aware that there's a volume two of your memoir uh, that I am yet to to read, and I'm really aware that uh, what I would love to do. And some of your finest achievements are, are sort of coming up. You've got, you know, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, um, uh, we, we, uh, which is a, a huge hit um, later on. Um, but I, rather than sort of rush everything and squeeze everything in, I'd love to do a sort of volume two of this chat as well, so that we can, uh, so that we can sort of expand on this, if that's okay with you at, at some point. That's fine because the the Australian um, life which is you know, 34 years of it now, is has a different rhythm to it. It's um, it, uh, obviously uh, different people working on the films, um, uh, a kind of diminishing interest in the music scene on my part, and yet uh, still buoyant because um, films need music. And so I'm, there's a part of me that, where the the kind of record company man never completely disappears. So um, that's that'll be interesting, really, to 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 make that comparison between the 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 early years and the later years, um, because it's the same person living them in a different country. Um, He's doing approximately the same things that he did before, but by doing them somewhere else, he's you know he's in a, a kind of parallel universe. <laughs> Was there ever a sense that, that, to some degree, going back to Australia? I mean, it feels like that, that every chapter of your life has a sort of geo, very geographical character. So you know, you have your childhood in Spain, you have your education in Scotland, you have your first part of your career in London. Is is that is, is that something that makes any sense to, or or are we flying around so much that it doesn't really matter? Oh yeah, the um, I, I think one of the things that may strike you about uh, Volume Two, Time Flies mm. Two, is that um, I spend so much time traveling, mm. and I I hadn't realized, despite the fact that you know I flew many thousands of miles to to get here and had been here three or four times uh, by the time I, I settled here, that um, it, uh, I, yeah, I just didn't realize I'd be traveling so much. You know, where I'd go to to Paris, 
with the rough cut of a film that we hope to get into Cannes and do the whole return trip, including two screenings in Paris, in four days. Right, right. I mean, it's it's crazy. Um, it's delirious stuff, uh, and I, I kind of I, I rather enjoyed it at the time, and lots of you know life or death moments, like finding myself on a Singapore airliner an hour out of Sydney, where the uh, the the or the uh, oxygen masks all come down, all two hundred and fifty of them at the same time, and there's Mayday shouting and stuff like that <laughs> going on, and you know just I, I think that. People, it may be easier now, although I doubt it, but I think that to live in Australia and have uh, international dealings in a pre-digital world was immensely wearying on the system. And yet it also simultaneously adrenalized it. It was, oh, you mean I have to go to Los Angeles this weekend and be back on Monday? Of course I'll do that. Um, Travel became, however squalid it was when the budget was low, um, there were enough little kind of luxurious dimensions to it that um, made it seem like a desirable, glamorous activity. Mm. And we killed ourselves during those years. Um, and now, of course, everybody's Zooming. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, well, for the second part of the conversation, I can always come to Australia uh, if, 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 the budget, <laughs> if the budget is. <laughs> so, anyway, whenever you like. Yeah, that that would be brilliant because I really don't want to rush it. And I even feel like I've rushed volume one just in this hour because there's so much to talk about. I mean, people will read the the autobiography uh, if they hear this podcast and they go out and they read the autobiography, which I, I assure people they should do. They'll be like, John, why the hell didn't you ask about... You know, <laughs> all yeah. of this other stuff. Um, one thing, I uh, just to, to lead on from the, the last thing you said, um, there's a brilliant episode where uh, in, in, in your story where you your wife gives birth to your first child and you think, oh, I can go and see a film in London and then be back in time. Yes. So you, you basically leave the hospital, go and see a movie and then come back. I know it's it's um it's a kind of startling irregularity. It was as if I had somehow subconsciously treated film as a reward for real or perceived hardship. You know, I've worked hard enough, even though I didn't actually have the child. <laughs> it's been really trying. So what I'm going to do to celebrate is take a train down to London and watch, you know, Antonioni's The Risky Point. <laughs> yeah, it's very, it's a kind of sickness, as no, it's, that's beyond dispute. But um, I, I like to think that I've, I've kind of balanced it out a little better nowadays. That was probably the peak of my idiocy. It's a, it's a sickness I share. I remember leaving my yeah. wife Lydia in hospital with our second child, just born, and going to see Kill Bill 2 as my, as my celebration. And I was just like, why? Yeah, what? yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. We Thankfully, we're aware of it. And so we, we probably don't need that much help at the moment. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking to me, Al. I really appreciate it. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading the next book and having part two of this conversation. Pleasure. See you then. Coming soon, Cinema Italia, a new podcast dedicated to the glories of Italian cinema. Each week, special guests from around the world will discuss their favorite Italian films, from spaghetti westerns to neorealism, Jali to Roberto Benigni, La Dolce Vita to Cannibal Holocaust. We'll be casting a new light on old classics, as well as exploring recent currents in contemporary Italian film. Along the way, we'll unearth some lesser-known gems. Subscribe now so as not to miss an episode. Presented by me, John Bleasdale. Arrivederci ragazzi, ci vediamo in un prossimo film. Lo speriamo. <laughs>